Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Sarah Hamburg, co-founder of Absentia, which is a community-owned open science ecosystem that unlocks data silos, revolutionizes collaboration, and democratizes funding. So essentially, this is an open science DAO, and I'm super excited to talk to Sarah more about what DSI is, what Absentia does, where this name came from. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This is my first ever podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Wow. I'm honored that you came on my podcast for the first one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So before we dive into Absentia, which I I may not be pronouncing that correctly, and we'll get to that as well, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. I know you're a a PhD in something science-y. So tell me about that journey. And then at what point did you come across crypto? And what was it about crypto that was that interesting to you? I studied neuroscience as my undergrad, and then I wanted to transition into working more with people. So I did a psychology master's, experimental psychology. I was quite interested in brain imaging, and I did eye tracking as well. Um, and then my PhD is its kind of the intersection between, I guess, neuroscience and psychology. It's, it's cognitive neuroscience, so it's almost like the software of the brain. But you do a lot of any kind, all kinds of neuroscience still in any kind of neuroscience PhD. So I was looking at brain imaging. I was doing EEG studies, which is where you put electrodes on people's heads. Um, and I was measuring what's called resting state brain activity, which is what the brain is doing when it's not doing anything in particular. So when it's just like idling along. Um, and I was really interested in that because it's kind of always been a bit of the underdog. It was a bit overlooked. And um, I'm always interested in those things a bit more. And it's um, I was looking at it in people with Down syndrome, so people with intellectual disability, and looking at relationships between that and cognitive ability. Um, it's just a really interesting area that I was working on at the time. I was actually a researcher at, at the university, at University College London, at the time, and I did my PhD part-time because they had this scheme where if you were staff, you could just like register for PhD. So I kind of did it as a hobby alongside my job. <laughs> and then I got to the end of my PhD and I, I absolutely loved my PhD. I feel like I'm one of the only academics I met that can really say I really did love my PhD, but I left academia because I got really interested in technology. Um, I got really interested in blockchain. I got the bug um, and I wanted to just work in something completely different for a while. I mean, I still love neuroscience and I always thought I'd like to do a bit of a loop and come back to science. And I feel like finally I've, I've done that because I went off into industry and I worked in in fintech consulting, um, and then I worked with JP Morgan for, I would say a year, but it was two years because I lost a year for COVID, it's like COVID maths. Um, it was actually two years I was at JP Morgan. And then, yeah, now I'm here in Barcelona working with Absentia. And you did say it very well. It's it's Latin, so it's the office stands for open, um, but Ciencia is, is Latin for science. And I think everyone says it slightly differently. I always say there's no right way of saying it, and I just call it Opsi, and, and uh, that's always a lot easier. But yeah, so I got really interested in technology and crypto um, through my brother because he's a cryptocurrency writer. And in around sort of 2017, I was coming towards the end of my PhD and I wasn't really sure which direction I wanted to go in. Um, and he told me about Ethereum and I got deep in the rabbit hole 
of many Reddit forum when I should have probably been doing my PhD. And here we are today. <laughs> wow, what a journey. So when you first started learning about blockchain and crypto, like from your brother, what thought process did you have to go through in order to understand it? Because I think most people when they're first exposed to this new technology, they sort of, you know, it just goes over their head or maybe they're skeptical. They don't think this is going to work. They think maybe it's a scam. It's a black market. So like at what point did it click for you and like how did you make it click? It's a really interesting question. Um, so I'd always been interested in cryptocurrency before. I remember hearing about Bitcoin before that and um, I wanted to buy some Bitcoin, but I was so naive that when I Googled it, it was like, the price of one Bitcoin was more than I wanted to spend. I was like, oh, I, can't, I, don't, I won't buy a Bitcoin then. Like, it didn't even occur to me you could buy part of a Bitcoin. Like, it just hadn't crossed my mind. And I suppose as someone outside, why would, it, why would you think you could buy part of a Bitcoin? And then obviously Bitcoin shot off and I was like, oh, I should have looked into that a bit more. And then when my brother mentioned about Ethereum and he, he was like, oh, it's, like, it's kind of like Bitcoin, but you can build on top of it. And um, this whole industry is being built on top of it. And I remembered that I'd always been interested in Bitcoin and I kind of then went and researched it. And I'm really lucky that I had my brother kind of to ask all those sort of stupid questions of. And I think that's really important when you're learning to have someone in your life. You can just text any random link to that mentions something about blockchain and, and be like, what does this mean? Or what are these words? Or, you know, I think at the start I was like just the most stupid questions, probably, but not stupid, but just as a novice coming into the area. So that was really important. But yeah, in terms of like how I understood the technology, I think I always got it. Like it was a new, it was a revolutionary tool. It was it was going to change everything. As And maybe it's just a representative of his skills at communicating um, technology, but I just got it instantly that it was something that was going to be very, very important. And I guess because I, I knew he'd been involved in, in finance for a while. And when he told me this, that this is coming along. It's, it's a trusted source, I suppose, as well. So, yeah, in, in case anyone's wondering, my brother's called Harry Hamburg, and he does write uh, very good blogs about crypto. He's got a particularly good one, which is everything you ever need to know about crypto. And I always direct people to that because I think when you get into crypto, you have any loads of people in your life just start randomly asking you about it all the time. And I just ping them this article. I'm like, just read my brother's article. And like everyone starts, everyone starts reading my brother's articles. Like my friend's parents start reading them and asking me about what's your brother writing about next. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> where does he does he write for a publication or for himself like where can people find his uh yeah his he used to write for several different publications over the years i'm probably being a very bad sister now because i don't remember the name of the particular one he's writing for now it's a big american thing um but he does his own he does his own one which is what i read so it's called coin confidential but he's called harry hamburg so if you google harry hamburg you're not going to forget that name i'm sure you'll find harry him um, yeah that that has a ring to it I like yeah, the alliteration definitely. names. Okay, cool. So so you got into it from, you know, your brother was a big help. I think that it definitely helps. Like so many people I've talked to on the podcast said, you know, they had a, a trusted person in their life, whether it was a, a family member or just a really good friend who they were able to, you know, just text all the basic questions to and really learn from and know that, you know, they're getting trusted information and not getting scammed. So that's super helpful. And then at what point did you connect, you know, like blockchain technology with science and combine these two worlds? I think it's really interesting because over the years, I was always texting my brother like, is anyone doing things with science? Is anyone doing things with neuroscience? 
the answer was kind of always no from him. Maybe they were and I didn't know about it. But it was it was around this time last year and me and, and Alex is also the co-founder, Alexandra, she's the, the software engineer. She's a good friend of mine. I, I worked with her in, in the fintech consultancy. We were in Edinburgh and we were just sat in this, this cafe and I'd been scoping out some ideas for, I'm really passionate about neurotechnology. So as I said, I did my PhD with, with EEG, which is where you measure the brain activity on people's heads. And we're at this point in history where we now have the ability to, anyone can image their own brain at home with a set of headphones that look just like this. Like this could literally just have some electrodes in which can read my brain activity and send it off. And some algorithms can pull out loads of different metrics around concentration and attention and stress. And you can even program like mental commands. So I could command a drone to fly if I want. And I think YouTube is full of like those kind of spectacle examples. But yeah, so I was interested in brain wearables and I'm very concerned about the future of brain wearables and I mean, obviously, the most notable of these is, you know, Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's company, and that's an invasive um, neurotech. It's not really a wearable. It's an invasive neurotech device. It's not like headphones. Um, but that's just one example. So there's these companies spring up all over, and we are in the future going to be giving our brain data over to lots of companies. And I'm very concerned about the centralization of that data. Um, I mean, not necessarily even because you can read in anything into it immediately, but if people store that data, who knows what you can read into that in, in decades, decades time. And um, it concerns me quite a lot in terms of like the neuroethics. I'm, I'm quite into neuroethics and, and who owns that data and what they're using it for and, and why are consumers giving it over so willingly. But also I want people to be able to wear these cool wearables and like interact with their computers with like just with the, my thoughts. Um, how cool is that? So I want this future, but also I'm kind of torn because I worry very much about what that future looks like from an ethical point of view. And I was sat with Alex in a cafe in Edinburgh and we were talking about how we should there should be this back end from BCIs um, and how you could maybe use um, crypto, you could use Web3 to to store the data securely and, and um, permission the data in certain ways. And we started sketching it out, like how you could have a backend for BCIs, essentially. And so that kind of became this thing that we were interested in. We used to talk about it a lot. Um, and then it wasn't until earlier this, this year, in 2021 now, 2021, it wasn't until earlier this spring that I wanted to try and see if there was anyone else out there who's doing something similar. I'd always Googled it, but not really found anything. And then I posted on, I was a member of Neurotech X, who are a really good um, community of sort of like neurohackers, just neurotech enthusiasts. And I posted on there if anyone was working with blockchain and, and, um, and neurotech. And Shadi, who's the, the founder of, of Accenture, he answered the call. He's like, oh, hey, I'm working on that. We should connect. So we connected and we had several calls and um, we really just shared a vision of, of what we, we want to do. I think we're quite complementary. So he's coming at it from very much an academic point of view. So around the same time, he was finishing his PhD. And, and with COVID coming along, there was problems with you know sharing of these big data sets. Labs were kind of shutting down and students were going home, but they just couldn't, couldn't access their data. And so he'd seen firsthand the, the, the poor infrastructure that we have for science um, and the impact it's having on, on science on the ground. I definitely shared those those values and similar experiences even before COVID of, of academia and, and data sharing, but also from a, I guess, from more of a consumer wearable point of view as well is, is what I'm interest, interested in. So the sort of products that are coming out of the space. So we're kind of quite complementary with our vision. And um, Alex is, is really interested in, in data ownership um, and sort of the ethics of that and how people can have ownership and autonomy um, and using kind of crypto in, in those ways. So, yeah, we all can, we're kind of on the same 
same page. It was it was really quite magical, it felt like. And then we did Kernel together. So he said, oh, I'm starting Kernel. Like, I've got a couple of places. Do you guys want to come along? And we didn't know him really at this point. And we didn't know what Kernel was. And we kept looking what Kernel was. And we, we were still like, I think it looks really cool. Like, we should probably do it. And we're like, yeah, we should probably do it. And uh, yeah, we did it. And it was absolutely fantastic. And we really bonded as a team. And we built out a, a prototype. And um, we had some um, fellows, fellows working with us, so Google, some of code fellows, um, sort of students in, in India who are part of our team, and they helped us. Um, they've been doing a lot of work in the back end, and we won some hackathons with our prototype. And and then when Kernel ended, we all came to Barcelona, and here, here I am now on your podcast. <laughs> wow, what a story. Very serendipitous, as many things are in the crypto world. A lot of that science and tech overlap reminds me of Black Mirror a lot. Like it gets me really excited, like you were saying, like, you know, you're really bullish on it, but also like kind of scared at the same time. So then you get together with this shared vision and then tell me more about how Absentia has developed since then and then more about what it is. I know I sort of like did a brief intro. Absentia is this like open science DAO, but like, yeah, I'd love to hear more about what that means. We're all on the same page about what we wanted to do in terms of the problems in, in science that we wanted to try and address. So I think it's probably easier if I just kind of go over those a bit first and talk about where we come in. So science is, it's not really, it's not been modernized, you know, it's, it has many problems in it, and I don't want to start ranting about science, but, um, you know, there's the, the replication crisis is quite familiar to many people of, of the fact that, like, lots of studies don't replicate, and, and part of the problem which contributes to that is, um, you know, we have a lot of science which, which goes unpublished, so people aren't incentivized. The incentive structures are all wrong, essentially, so you're not really incentivized to publish negative results. You're not incentivized to replicate other people's studies, because why would you? You want to kind of go off and do your own exciting thing. You don't want to spend weeks replicating someone else's study. If you get a negative result, you don't want to spend weeks writing that up. It's not. It's just not that exciting, um, and, it, and that tends to lead to bad science, because there's no incentives to, to spend your very valuable time as a scientist you, you always very stretched on publishing those types of, of research and and we also have this sort of publish or perish culture in in science so if you're not publishing in in high impact journals if you you really can't your career can kind of end you you're not you're not going to keep winning your your grants to carry on with your research which is exacerbated by the fact people don't really have permanent positions in science it's all temporary contracts you have to keep winning your job essentially improving that you are invaluable like making valuable contributions and one of the ways of doing that is is through sort of you know big bang publishing and and that does lead to some some bad problems in science in terms of like um, maybe not going for the the subjects or, or the replication etc that people should be spending time on there's also a lot of unpaid work in science so you spend a lot of your time on peer reviewing other people's papers and it's all it's, it's all entirely anonymous it's just part of the burden of science that falls on the shoulders of scientists that is unpaid work and it's, it's because you need to contribute to the ecosystem and make sure people are doing good science but you're not really incentivized to spend your time doing that it's just you know you should, but there's still no no incentives to do so. Um, unpaid work in terms of training. Yeah, so there's a lot of poor incentive structures which lead to to poor practice in science. So because of the publish or perish mentality, you don't have data sharing, open data sharing as you should do, which is a problem as well. So it, there's more of an adversarial working culture rather than a collaborative working culture. And I think people outside of science are quite surprised by that. But um, I think anyone who's worked in science would maybe understand that it comes from this pressure to to publish, essentially. The funding models for science are another issue. It's, it's not very transparent why some people get funded. It's not very democratic. Um, the profits from science don't actually flow back to scientists. So 
you know, COVID vaccines are, are making millions for pharmaceutical companies, but are those people who've who spent years doing that bench, basic bench research, what, what will they see of it? But just not what will they see. It's just science is almost like a welfare model of, of, of public institutions and charities have spent billions over the years on things like vaccine research. And that there's a broken link that that is not going to flow back into into basic research. And what could humanity achieve if it did flow back? What, what could we be doing and what could we be discovering? So I think that's really interesting. Um, and also as well, like I think there's a lot of bottlenecks in science. So you get a lot of people leaving, like kind of I, I left science because of a lot of the negative aspects of it. But science isn't all bad. I feel like I just rant about how bad science is. But this is bringing me to why of what we're doing with Absentia. So we want to unlock the data silos, as, as you said. So that means um, instead of people working in silos with their data and maybe you know, keeping it very close, maybe not sharing it, not necessarily because they don't want to, but it's very hard with the infrastructure that we have. We don't have infrastructure to easily share huge data sets and we're getting bigger and bigger data sets all the time in science. I've been doing user research with scientists for weeks now, speaking to scientists every day, and they all have similar problems of, of this very poor infrastructure. Um, so we want to try and build a, an infrastructure to enable peer-to-peer -peer sharing of files. So it's just as easy as dragging and dropping. You can do it all in the browser. You can have compute to data. Um, so you don't like it just, just makes things a lot easier, especially to, you know, it's privacy preserving computation than for human data if you have compute to data. Changing the incentive structures. So the great thing about crypto is it, it lets us kind of um, change value systems so we can recreate value systems to be around knowledge rather than necessarily you know, financial rewards and, and communities can create knowledge and that's what the community deems valuable. Um, and we can incentivize people to then create more knowledge and contribute to the, the community that way. So, And also the funding, democratizing funding, um, kind of similar to how Gitcoin does it, I suppose. I mean, we're exploring lots of different methods of funding. We have a funding working group in our DAO, um, but this idea of kind of unlocking the wisdom of the crowd is, is really interesting when it comes to science and making sure everything's transparent. So we're essentially an ecosystem, a modern ecosystem of scientific tools, which are web-free scientific tools um, to you know unlock data and coordinate collaboration and, and ultimately de democratize funding as, as well. So hopefully that makes things a bit clearer. That was an excellent explanation. I think a lot of that was surprising for me to hear, being someone not in the science space. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, scientists are working towards a greater human good. They're trying to help make our lives better, I think. And so it, it is surprising to hear that it's so adversarial and not collaborative because you would hope that people working towards such a big goal, a big vision would, you know, put their heads together and build something together that was surprising to hear yeah it's not always that bad and people are getting it, it's a lot better than i think it, it used to be sometimes but um generally that tends to be a, a sentiment which is which is echoed kind of a, across science but different fields of science will have, will have their own special kind of like cultures within them as well so for yeah. sure yeah so how do you envision people participating in absentia or using absentia in the future do you envision all of these scientists coming together and sort of spending all of their time pulling their research together in absentia and getting paid through absentia because obviously there's you know like it, the publisher parish vibe that's like part of the scientist world you know scientists probably will be scared to share their research and their findings unless they know that it's a safe place where they can get paid for it and sharing doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, lose out in the long run and like not get the funding or not win the grants. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's very important that we make sure that the scientists feel comfortable to use the platform. And that's why we're doing a lot of user research right now to find out people's needs, to find out their attitudes towards open science, towards data sharing. I mean, I would like to say every scientist I spoke to loves the idea of open science, but it's just the logistics of that are difficult and not necessarily because of the culture, but because of the infrastructure as well there. So, yeah, we're doing lots of user research to try and work out the best systems for that. And also, I, just, I do want to note as well, it's not just individual scientific data, it's, it's this huge open source scientific data sets already out there, which scientists have spent years of their lives contributing to, um, but they're just sometimes difficult to access as well. So it's about putting those in these peer-to-peer store, um, file storage as well. How many scientists are part of Absentia right now? So I think our community is probably around about 150, I would say. They're not all scientists, though. We have a lot of techies, a few business people. Um, and we've only just started. So we only really started properly, I guess, in kernel a few months ago. But I think as well, what, what's really interesting is when you unlock these silos, you 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 then um, unleash collaboration between different fields of science, which is something that I feel really passionately about. So one of the hindrances of science is that everyone works in silos, not just because of their data, but just um, silos of thought as well, because maybe you're not interacting with different kinds of scientists from completely different fields. And what's, what I'm really excited about with Obcentra is we've created this thing called the DeFi Collider, which is um, kind of um, part of this DAO affiliate program. We've started with other science DAOs where we're bringing other organizations, not just DAOs, just like, you know, virtual labs that have been out there doing these these open science ways of working for years and we're bringing them on board and we're, we're getting everybody together and we're sharing best practices about doing science in essentially a decentralized way so which just means outside of traditional institutions not necessarily because we don't think they're useful we think that they are extremely useful but it's just always good to have an alternative system as well um, so i'm really excited about when you unlock the data silos and you bring all the greatest minds together working in different disciplines and the crossovers of science and a lot of the the problems that we're facing as humanity is facing in the future are these um, multidisciplinary problems that, the, that that humanity faces, and we need scientists of all different kinds to work together on the big problems like climate change, etc. So we're bringing together lots of different kinds of scientists um, as well, in the hope that they can collaborate and share ideas, and and we can share best practices for how to do decentralized science because this is this is new. Um, people have been working in this way, in, I guess, through COVID, and it's definitely exacerbating and accelerated the trend, but it's something which we still lack the infrastructure for, and, and that's what we're, we're trying to build. Yeah. Do you see the DAO uh, functioning as sort of just a way to pay people for their research or to actually fund it almost like in a crowdfund setting where, you know, if you have an idea and you want to carry on your research, but you don't have the money to conduct the research right now, the DAO can put out a vote and say, yes, we really want to know the results to this. Like, here's some money, go and do this. Yeah, definitely. We want it to be self-sustaining. Ultimately, we want to create our own grant schemes. Um, so we're looking at different ways of doing that. So we have some NFTs or science ideas for that. But ultimately, we want it to be this self-sustaining where we can administer grants to people and they can as well, like the idea of the community is, is so important for science. And everyone knows that peer review is important. But what does that mean? And and at the moment, it means you submit a paper and maybe two, three people will comment on your paper and they give you the sample approval or, or say no. But but when we have a whole DAO who is a community, you can embed um, peer review like never before. You can in, embed sort of the, with that wisdom of the crowd throughout the whole process. So right away from pre-registration. So I can come up with an idea of an experiment. I can pre-register it, which is which is something else I, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but we're, we're, this idea of pre-registration is extremely important because it means that everything is then transparent right from the start and um, you're not going to then get people not publishing negative results because they've already kind of like pre-registered that they're going to do this experiment 
Um, so you can have crowd peer review right away from the beginning, right the way through hypothesis and, and checking your code and checking that, you know, you've, you've got the right ethics in place to the type of research that you want to do. Um, and then the traditional, more, more traditional peer review with, with publishing papers um, as well. But, but yeah, in terms of like the payment, we would really love it if we have, we can administer science grants um, through the platform. And that's definitely something we're looking at. And we have, we have, a work, we have working groups around that at the moment looking into ways of doing that. Yeah, very cool. And then where do you hope to see Absentia in the long term? Or like, what's your grand long term vision for the impact that Absentia can have? What I'm really excited about is um, with science now, it's if like I was saying, if aliens were to visit our planet and to be like, where's your science? I'd be like, oh, well, you can go to this journal to read about this and that journal to read about that. And everything's in a different format and everything's all over the place. I'm really excited about just having like a, a linked list of science and it's all ordered and it's essentially machine readable. Like what I want is machine and this is not just what I want, what Accenture wants is machine readable science um, in terms of the data, in terms of the findings. Um, so that we can have science ready for AI to come along. And by AI, I don't mean, you know, like artificial general intelligence in, in decades time. I just mean kind of like algorithms that optimize search processes, that optimize analysis, that optimize um, creating papers. And almost you could have a self-sustaining, um, I guess like we call them like knowledge generation factories. So semi-automated self-sustaining knowledge generation factories that are creating this knowledge by running on smart contracts um, with semi-automation built in um, and that's what we're really excited about because when you do have science in this kind of ordered way on web3 it's all linked together you do make it essentially machine readable and we can start automating simple things and free up sort of that human intelligence for maybe the more creative types of science of the interdisciplinary research etc so yeah that's kind of the long-term goal we have these sort of self-sustaining virtual labs and the idea being with our infrastructure anybody anywhere in the world citizen scientists are empowered anyone can be a citizen scientist like you don't have to have a phd like as long as you can do good research because the community will determine that um you can spring up your own lab you can download some data you can run some algorithms and you can find something really cool and like maybe the semi-automated publishing can help you publish that and the, the peer review embedded throughout through the community can ensure can stand to check it all um and it's it's like it reminds me so i'm from london and there's this art shop called Cassar. it's really good and they have these bags and the slogan on the bags is let's fill this town with artists and i always think like I kind of in my head like I've crossed it out. I'm like, let's fill this world with scientists. Like I think anybody can be a scientist as long as they're given the right tools. And I'm really excited about our ability to do that because science can be quite elitist. Um, you have to live, be privileged enough to live near big institute or be able to travel and get visas to the big institutions, etc. And I think there's a lot of people in the world who could be contributing to science, but because of bottlenecks, arbitrary bottlenecks that we have created from history, they're not doing so. And and I think using Web3 tools to, to change the infrastructure of science will allow more people to participate, um, which is what I'm excited about, because then you get much more diversity of thought and much more creativity in science, which is incredibly important. I think hearing you say all that, it just like clicked for me why it's called DSI. You know, after the same goal as DeFi, like the thesis behind DeFi is leveling the playing field and democratizing access to finance for all groups. And you're basically trying to do the same thing with science, like democratizing access to science. 
you know, both from a scientist perspective and from like a consumer perspective uh, for all people. So I, I think, yeah, that, that just like clicked for me the way that you said it. Sorry, I feel like I've done, I do this a lot. I feel like I've done the whole podcast backwards. <laughs> I should have maybe started with that. Um, but it's also similar to the creator economy, right? Like with people trying to solve problems in social media of like ownership um, and the, the value flowing back to the creators in social media. It's, it's the same thing. It's just scientists are creating knowledge instead of viral videos. Maybe some scientists create viral videos as well. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I actually had that same thought about like content creators too, as you were saying all of that. Um, and then a, f- a few things that you talked about too with like incentive structures. I'm wondering like what your thinking is right now with in regards to DAOs in general or even the crypto ecosystem at large. What do you see as some of, I guess, like the problems or the things that we still need to work on with regard to like incentivizing people to do the things that we want them to do. Cause I think like drawing another parallel to uh, OPSI with the larger DAO or crypto ecosystem is that we're, we really lack the infrastructure um, that we need to scale what we're trying to do. And yeah, so I just, I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on like where, you know, DAOs still need some work um, and where you think, where you think things are going well and where you think things are going not so well? Gosh, it's a really good question. It's a really difficult one to answer. Um, so I think where things aren't going well, everyone's on different time scales and everyone can contribute different hours. And, you know, maybe it would be good if we all took a step back from just the Discord names and avatars and we kind of took the time to know people's situation a bit more in terms of what their interests are. You know, everyone needs to ha- have some level of autonomy in a DAO and be self-directed. And I think the people who find their ways, their way into DAOs tend to be like that anyway at, at the moment. But but we need to, for me, so I kind of manage, the, I'm the side of managing the community a lot. And I personally feel like I would love to be able to understand more about who is in my DAO. Like, what are their other interests? What are their commitments? What time zone do they prefer to work in? You know, they're working on this project, but are they really interested in this project? Or maybe maybe there's another project that they have an idea for that, you know, they don't feel that there's a necessary forum for because they're so busy with this thing. I think time is an issue. Like everyone's so time poor and understanding more about who's in your community um, to work with them about how they can best enjoy being a part of that community and add value would be quite good. And I, I don't, there might be tools for this. I don't know, but just, I suppose just the, the best thing sometimes is always just being human and just scheduling time with people and just getting to know who they are. And we're quite lucky that our, our DAO is quite, still quite small, but as we scale, I imagine I'll still want to know like more about people than I'll be able to know. So maybe just some kind of standard signifiers on people's profiles or just more, maybe people spending more time filling in bios. Like I know it feels a bit web two doing a bio, um, like, but it'd be quite useful. And DAO-to-DAO collaborations is something that I think is really important and it's something that we're finding there aren't really the tools for yet. And I think it's going to become increasingly important. And um, Alex, our co-founder software engineer, she suggested something to Discord on Twitter the other day. And, and I think quite a lot of people were like, oh, that's a great idea. And it's about, you know, maybe having channels which are visible across different different DAOs and admins from each DAO for, for that, that specific channel. So maybe... Maybe more tools like that would be quite useful. But yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer. And I don't, I don't think I have an answer yet. I think I need to be in the DAO world for, for a very long time to, well, a lot more time to come up with maybe something more useful than that. Well, I, I think that's a really good point. I actually just saw Big Sky post a tweet thread on like exactly what you just said. 
I just pulled it up, but he says, uh, basically, like, my biggest worry around DAOs and decentralized protocols is that we are not building the infrastructure to ensure that individuals do not fall through the cracks. And then he says, crypto and DeFi projects are made up of thousands of real people with real human emotions and concerns. We have zero safety structure in place right now to ensure that people are doing okay and being taken care of. And sort of like this whole thread about that. And, And that's, you know, sort of the point you hit on, too. And I think it's a tough challenge to solve for because on the one hand, I think people really appreciate that they can be anon in this world and that that's not taboo and that that's okay. And, you know, they sort of don't have to be judged by how they look or by their background or where they're from or any of these things. I think there's something beautiful about that. But at the same time, that does make it really hard to build personal relationships and connections and to really get to know people and understand people and what they want and, you know, where they come from and be able to, in our normal human interactions too, like with people that we don't get along with so well, maybe if we take the time to understand their background and where they're, the context of like why they're doing or saying the things that they are helps us to sympathize a lot more. And so we're sort of missing that in DAOs and in in crypto, in the crypto space in general right now. So I I don't really know what the solution to that is. Yeah, I think we are maybe too quick to jump to tech solutions um, because we all love tech. But sometimes actually just pinging people and having a chat with them and getting to know what their favorite song is or, you know, just something about that. And that builds cohesion among teams when you know personal details about each other, which actually brings me to another point I was thinking about, about how, you know, organizational psychology is a huge field. And I don't really know if organizational psychology courses and know that DAOs exist yet. And we should get more people who study organizational psychology to actually start specializing in DAOs because we're not going to have all the answers yet. And we're not going to have all the answers for a while, but just looking at different structures, um, different ways of communication, different ways of working um, in different fields would be really useful from an academic point of view. And I think um, that would be, yeah, that would just be really useful. And we should have that embedded in in psychology, you know, it, which brings me to another point, which I wanted to make about like, you know, I think in terms of the space, like what it needs now more than anything is is education um, from the wider community about Web3. And I know everyone talks about this all the time and everyone agrees it's needed. But in terms of like how I think we should be approaching this is we should be all banging on the doors of universities and saying like, why don't you have a tokenomics module in your economics classes? Why don't you have a module on minting NFTs on your art degrees? Like why aren't business studies courses doing modules and DAOs and psychology courses doing modules when we talk about group behavior, about about online community behavior. Like I think I think academia um, is maybe a bit slow to catch up with what's been happening on the ground here. And we almost need them now to to be like, look, can you guys like study this? And can you tell these young 18 year old students that this thing exists so we can all start um, being more on board with what it all means and, and progressing and learning um, maybe in those ways, as, as well as through the usual channels that we all learn through like Reddit and Twitter and white papers and things. Yeah, for sure. I, I almost think it would be really cool to, I mean, because that's like the area that I focus like my work in is just like crypto education to the masses. And, and you know, that is like my goal to reach everybody with Web3 and onboard them on a Web3. And I almost think it would be cool to have like a creator DAO of sorts where you just reach out to people in all different fields. It can even be like, you know, PhD students or even university students who are studying psychology that are studying economics, studying 
you know, organizational studies or all of these different things and give them an opportunity to, you know, do some research and do some work outside of their classwork, which doesn't include any of this stuff yet, and be able to contribute their learnings and, you know, sort of apply the things that they're learning in school to something that's a lot more practical and exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's, it's needed. And especially when you think about like art, art degrees and things like that, they should be teaching them about how to mint and everything like that, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I love all those thoughts. I'm curious too, like, are there any other rabbit holes that you've been going down recently in crypto outside of science? Oh gosh, I think, oh, I feel like I've been living down a rabbit hole since like 2017 in a rabbit warren. I feel like I live underground in a rabbit warren these days. Um, <laughs> You're so deep down the tunnel, <laughs> you like can't even get back out. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think the NFT space has just been fascinating this year. I think we've all felt it. Um, just really interesting stuff coming out all the time. I feel like I can't keep up with what's going on. Yeah, the, the NFT side of it in terms of the, the artworks and and. I'm so inspired by this idea and motivated by this idea of, of creating funding for, for artists. You know, we all, it's like a, we almost have a welfare model of art where we, we like artists beg for money from, for grants, yet they generate enormous profits when you think about what they do for, you know, even opening a gallery and it gentrifies the area and all the property prices go up and, and the, the value they create for culture and tourism and, and the value they create just not just monetary value, but through quality of life. And, and we have this this current welfare model for arts where people have to beg for funding. And I'm so excited that artists can get paid for their work now. And it's not perfect, it's new, but I'm really excited that people are building on this and iterating on it to and making it constantly more exciting and better. And um, and yeah, I just love all the, the, NFT, the NFT art that's been coming out. I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that, you you know, you can be an artist and not be a starving artist in Web3. I think that's super exciting to me. And it's been fascinating to try and understand why certain NFT projects end up exploding and others don't. And there's so many elements that go into that, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. So we're looking at doing some, I think I mentioned some NFTs for science. Um, we're doing this really exciting Cyanon project because we want to um, give a nod to those scientists who have been forgotten through history because their work has been written out of history or misappropriated by others because maybe they're from a minority group. So we're doing this Cyanon um, project and we've pitched to NFDAO who have formed, I think, out of Kernel because um, it's a it's a public good almost, like if we can help people to to build these NFT projects and get them off the ground. It's really exciting that there's a DAO like helping giving grants to, to projects like ours or who we've pitched to for like, we need a science historian and we need like artists and things like that. So yeah, it's a really exciting time. And I think I've been probably going down the rabbit hole a lot more because I know that we want to see some NFTs for science. Um, and it's, it, as you say, it's a really exciting time because I think I keep saying that over and over, but as you say, you, you don't have to be a starving artist anymore. And I can't really think of a time in history when, when you didn't have to be a starving artist if you're an artist, apart from when you used to get paid by the church, but obviously you couldn't really paint what you wanted then. And now it's it's freedom. It's freedom and funding, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, well, before we wrap up, Sarah, I just have a couple of tweets that I'm going to give you a chance to explain. I end every podcast episode with this explain your tweet segment. I've got two for you here. The first one is from September 24th, 2021. 
You said tools in the hands of excluded groups drives innovation with the 77 NY blackout kids looted DJ equipment and hip hop was born. 80s Dundee was full of computers from a factory there. Kids learned to build games and GTA was born. What happens when more people have science tools? So I know we've sort of talked about this a little bit, but uh, I'm curious. I, I don't know if people understand those references that you said there. So I'd love a little history lesson here. Yeah. So um, I stole this post from one of my friends on Instagram, but then I, I changed it to DSI. I have a DSI on it, just full disclosure. So there's this idea that in history, if you look at the, the 77 blackout was in, in New York. And what happened was um, young people who, who um, couldn't afford... I guess DJ equipment, things like microphones and turntables, they've been excluded from, from that. Um, they looted them instead. It's touted as like the birth of hip hop because then suddenly all these young people who weren't at all lacking in creativity, they were just lacking in tools, suddenly had tools and they all, they created a whole new genre of music, which has inspired God knows how many other genres of music. Whether you're not, you're a hip hop fan or not, it doesn't matter because it's culture at the end of the day and it's, it might have happened, but more slowly, etc. Um, and the Dundee reference was, was drawing a parallel to that because um, Dundee in the 80s um, is a very poor area. A lot of people were on the on dull welfare benefits um, and there was a computer factory there and um, not all the computers made it out the factory onto the market. Some of them just made it into the community and you ended, the, the town was a, it was said to be awash with, with this specific kind of computer console. And, and so kids grew up um, with these computer consoles and they learned to code their own games and that's how there was these um, a very poor area of the UK, and but but kids were building their own computer games, and that's how the Grand Theft Auto that that eventually birthed the whole Grand Theft Auto enterprise, and lots of other. I mean, Lemmings as well. Lemmings is yeah, I prefer to Grand Theft Auto to be honest. I'm showing my age now, but Lemmings was great. Um, I believe that also came out of Dundee. So um, it's just this idea that we live in a world where we think the people who create things are the only people who can create things, and until everyone has tools we never know what's possible and I'm so excited by having a world where anybody can do science because you don't need a PhD you just need a community around you to to teach you and so you can learn from um, and I, I hate the elitism I absolutely hate the elitism that comes along with science and there's good reason you, you study for so many years but you don't I don't think there's any need to study for so many years in sort of these uh, old-fashioned institutions when a lot of science is actually now a lot of good science and modern science is collaborative and online and I think we can we can generate I'm just so excited what we could generate if, if everybody if everybody who wants to be a scientist can be a scientist can you imagine if we had a world full of that where there wasn't any there wasn't the bottlenecks that exist now and um, I think the parallels I was drawing there was we just don't know what would happen we literally don't know what what people would be looking at but it would be a lot less group think we'd be looking at a lot more diverse issues that affect a lot more different populations of people in, in regions of the world and I think that would be a fantastic thing yeah totally agree that was so uplifting I almost want to end there I feel like this next tweet I have is going to like kill the mood a little bit is it the meme that me and alex made it might be the meme I don't know. it's not a meme but okay here we go okay. so the other one i have is from september 1st 2021 you said as someone who's always had very vivid nightmares i'd be so intrigued to create a crowdsourced anonymous one of one scenes from my nightmares nft series i'm sure tonight i'll now have a nightmare that i do this and we're all seeing the same things <laughs> I thought this was interesting because I'm also a nightmare person. I, I don't know, like, if you know the science behind it, I would love to, like, have a cure to not have it. But also, I was going to say, like, you should 
like figure out a way to do it. I think Matt Condon's working on like a sort of similar sleep project, not with nightmares, but like more like sleep talking. And so really like anything you can dream up of in this space you can do. What if everyone's saying the same thing in their sleep? That's terrifying. Um, yeah, I, I do have a lot of nightmares. I don't actually know the neural basis for nightmares. I think there's a few different theories about maybe like the depth of sleep that you're going in and out of, et cetera, or stress or pain while you're asleep. Um, but yeah, I have very vivid nightmares. I remember that particular nightmare. <laughs> it was really horrible. Um, but yeah, this I, I'm always just coming up with, with NFT, with not necessarily NFT ideas. They used to be art ideas. And I guess now I just call them NFT because I'm using NFT and art interchangeably and, and I probably shouldn't do. Um, but it's just interesting how my language has, has changed because that shows that for me, a piece of art is now synonymous with an NFT. And how did that happen in my brain? That's quite fascinating. <laughs> Well, I think for the next generation, they're going to be confused when you tell them that you used to, you know, buy art from the store and hang it on your wall or something. I think that's just going to be totally synonymous for them. Yeah, I did have another tweet, actually, I thought you were going to bring up, which was um, if I ever have kids, I expect them to ask me, like, who owned all the JPEGs? And and so the only way to buy anything was with government money. What do you mean? Like, I really yep, expect yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing that tweet, too. That was a good one. That's I, I think that's totally true. I mean, it, it's funny for us to think about right now. But I think in the future, that's just going to be how it is. Yeah, it's, it's almost like we all have mobile phones and the idea of what you used to call a building to speak to someone. Why would you how you called a building and not a person? Like, it's the things which, which seem so normal because we live through them. And then technology comes along. And we're just like, wow. Yeah, or like writing letters. Like, can you imagine what writing letters to people is going to feel like in the future? I mean, already now, you know, can't think of the last time I wrote a letter. I'm really obsessed with the whole like analog to digital thing. And I think this is because I've lived through like this computer revolution. I'm showing my age now, but I'm 35. And I remember what it was like before computers and before mobile. Like, I grew up, we had a computer in my house, but not always. And like, I'm obsessed with this analog to digital and like I do I, I'm really into like photography and I'm really excited because I'm going to get this camera which takes it takes um 30 second silent movies but with film and then you can digitize it and then you could nft it if you wanted was the next thought I had so you're going right away from film into you know an nft um a digital film and then nft that and yeah I'm obsessed with this analog to digital thing and I think it is because that's my, my the timeline I have traversed on this earth going from analog to, di to digital for many things I just find it really interesting I love that idea I love that mm. awesome well before you go Sarah tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you if they have follow-up questions with you and then also where people can go to learn more about absentia yes definitely so please please visit our website which is opsi.io so you don't even need to have to spell absentia to go to our website. Um, we also have a Twitter um, as well. But yeah, if you visit our website, we've got all our links in there. And please, if you're interested in DSI, if you're interested in any of the things I've spoken about, we'd love it if you join our Discord um, and take part in the conversations happening on there. Take part in our working groups. Um, and the Discord link is just on our website, which is opside.io. So thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time, Sarah. I'm so glad you came on. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, as always. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. 
We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.